Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick. I've got some exciting news. In this episode, you may hear some allusions to the fact that our iOS ITB app is not yet out. But actually, that's not true. It is actually out now finally released. So go to the App Store on iOS, type in Inside the Boards, download our app for exclusive and expanded shows, early access to content or podcasts that we're going to be releasing in the future, some meditations designed specifically for medical students with the hope that they'll be used during your dedicated USMLE prep time to help you stay a little bit healthier And then, of course, high-yield samples from our all-audio QBank and the option to purchase a subscription. If you're a previous subscriber via Podbean, keep an eye on your email. We'll be sending you instructions on how to transfer your current subscription so that you can access the audio QBank on the new iOS app. It is a beta version. It's not perfect. But I think it is perfect as a companion to help you study on the go while you're driving, working out, whatever you have to do in life. We're hoping to give you back some time through producing this audio cue bank. Thank you for being patient with me as we've gone through this journey together. I'm very excited about Inside the Boards. I'm very excited about helping you with your medical education. And hopefully we're able to do at least something to make your lives a little bit better. So... Thank you so much for listening. Go download our app. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. All right, we are back. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is the Study Smarter mini-series for the USMLE Step 2 slash shelf exams. We're covering internal medicine. Today, we're back with Matthew Eisenstadt from Med School Tutors. For all your one-to-one virtual tutoring needs, especially during your dedicated prep time, go to medschooltutors.com. As well, check out our main show. The full title is Inside the Boards for the USMLE Comlex and Medical School. We've run an audio blog series featuring some question dissections and encouragement and wellness articles from the best blog in the medical education space at medschooltutors.com. A 67-year-old female presents to the emergency department, sees Dr. Einstadt with a chief complaint of retrosternal chest pain. I'm I'm sure this is like your bread and butter. Uh, (laughs) It's too much. Way too too much. much. Uh, The pain came on suddenly approximately two hours prior to arrival. Review of systems is also positive for nausea and diaphoresis. Vital signs show hypotension. On physical examination, she has jugular venous dissension and auscultation of the heart reveals 
a pan-systolic murmur heard best at the lower left sternal border. EKG shows ST segment elevation in the right precordial leads. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Do we have A, a dissecting aortic aneurysm, B, pericardial tamponade, C, pulmonary embolus, or D, a right ventricular myocardial infarction? Love this question. Right. This person is... You like this one? This is, this is my wheelhouse. So, sick yeah. person, chest pain. Love it. And teach us everything. Te- teach me everything. Uh, go find an attending. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is the this is the simplest form of question. So you're just looking for a diagnosis here. So there's no tricks on this one. Um, there is more to this question than really meets the eye, though, and I think it's I think it's worth diving a little bit into some of these answer choices. So you you know you have a 67 year old lady. So um, you know it, it pretty fairly safe to assume she's she's not you know the perfect ideal bill of health. Uh, but they don't give you any big risk factors or anything like that. Um, but the next couple sentences really paint the picture of somebody who's in severe distress. So uh, nausea, diaphoresis. Uh, I had a attending once tell me if your patient is diaphoretic, then you should be diaphoretic too. <laughs> by that. So it, that's one of the those symptoms that always uh, makes my ears perk up a little bit. Um, she's got signs of... Uh, Probably some heart failure with the JVD. Yeah. Doesn't show, you know, it doesn't say that she's got rails on pulmonary exam. So maybe we're not thinking as so much of a, a left-sided process as we would if, you know, they, they were short of breath on a bunch of oxygen with rails up to their eyeballs. Um, but then, so interesting little uh, tidbit. Again, the, the murmurs are just sort of like, you know, they're always in these questions a little thrown in. So the pan-systolic murmur best heard at the uh, left sternal border. So going through your uh, your cardiac positioning for auscultation, um, thinking it's likely at the tricuspid, left sternal border uh, is generally a tricuspid lesion. Uh, and then a pan-systolic murmur, you're suspecting tricuspid regurge. Now, it, it's not, that is, that's, a, that's one of those ones you're not sure what to do with. I've never, you know, it, you can't just like, oh, it's tricuspid regurge is answer C. <laughs> So the, uh, it, you know, it's, it's added a little bit of information, but I'm not, you're not sure what to do with that yet. And then you've got these ST segment elevations in the right precordial leads. So a little bit on the, uh, the right precordial lead yeah. thing, the EKG just purely by design is biased towards looking at the left ventricle. So all your, uh, your limb leads and your standard precordial leads all directly look at the left ventricle and can sort of indirectly look at the right ventricle. Um, but in certain pathologies, you actually want to see that what's actually happening in the right ventricle itself. So you can take a couple of the leads, V3 and V4, and flip them over the sternum to do what we call right-sided EKG leads. Um, it's it's unclear what? from... Yeah, I'm an OBGYN. It's a... Yeah, promo. promo. <laughs> you should you should you should break break that out on your uh, your pre C section yeah, screenings. Yeah. And you could do back, you know, you could do posterior leads. You could put leads wherever you want. So what they're actually getting at is 
uh, sort of hard to figure out because you're not really sure, are they talking about like a rightward facing lead or is it a right-sided EKG? Either way, you can sort of ignore all that that extra mumbo jumbo and just say, you know, something on the right side looks like there's ST elevation. So whether it's a right-sided, like a right-sided EKG or whether it's the right, the rightward facing leads is what we call them, like a V1, V2, that's a little more advanced, but something something's going on with the right side of the heart. The problem with all that is that uh, a lot of these conditions will actually cause right-sided heart problems. Yeah going through some of these so so a was the, dissecting the, aortic aneurysm yeah uh, i'm you know i'm like embarrassingly enough like uh eight or nine years something like that out of med school um but i, I would be looking for central chest pain that you know radiates to the back uh the between the scapula right that's what i'd want to yeah, see for yeah. an aortic aneurysm especially in in board's yeah, land exactly so uh it, and you can get things like, you know, my left leg is numb because now the circulation is cut off to the left leg or something like that. But uh, typically more of a tearing pain central. But the interesting thing about dissections is they can actually dissect back into the coronary arteries and can cause ST segment elevation. Probably not in a right-sided distribution, but it's not totally ridiculous to think a dissection on your differential for ST segment elevations. That being said, you know, they, they're giving you this typical crushing chest pain with nausea, vomiting, that sort of thing. Uh, they don't give you any other symptoms of a dissection, like a super elevated blood pressure or numbness in an arm or leg or something like that. So, yeah, I could pass on that one, but... Uh, it's not a ridiculous. All right, answer. pericardial tamponade. I mean, to me, this is. I'm looking for Beck's triad if if I have this. So that's uh, JVD, hypotension, uh, and muffled heart sounds. Right. We we've got the yeah. dyad here. <laughs> yeah, the dyad. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I hate triads. <laughs> I hate triads so much. <laughs> uh, so you got, you know, parts of it, but it's so funny, uh, like UWorld and uh, uh, NBME exams never pass up the opportunity to do like a electrical alternans or pulses paradoxes <laughs> yeah. or something like that. So they're going to they're going to give you the classic uh, kind of thing. So you're, you're missing some of that extra supporting evidence to uh, to suggest a tamponade. And then you're always going to think, like, why is there a tamponade? Shouldn't she with? have been in a car um, accident, hit her steering wheel, yeah. and have, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. Um, got punched in the heart. Yeah. I, punched yeah, in the heart. complaint. Yeah. Um, I'm still waiting. Uh, it'll that. happen. Uh, longer you practice. Um, yeah, so. I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to keep pericardial tamponade on the maybe... Um, if I'm reading through this vignette, uh, and the next one's pulmonary embolus, uh, wh- why not pulmonary embolus? Uh, this is this is the boogeyman in the ED. So this is uh, the the great mimic of a lot of things. So uh, a lot of the symptoms that they're describing, um, again, you're getting that classic ACS story with that substernal retrosternal chest pain is how they described it. Um, usually PE is more of a pleuritic pain, more of a sharp pain, more with breathing, uh, especially if, 
if it's big enough to have ST changes on an EKG, it's probably big enough to make you hypoxic or have some significant vital sign abnormalities. There is some hypotension, which is always uh, a, a worrisome sign for regardless of, of whether it's a, an ACS or a dissection or what. Without those classic symptoms and the chances of a PE actually having ST elevations is very low. Now, I'll tell you, it can happen, but on the test, what they'll give you is either the sinus yep. tachycardia or they'll give you the S1Q3 T3, which is, uh, you know, not terribly uh, sensitive or specific, but uh, people like to throw that around. Um, so they're not giving you the classic signs or symptoms. They're not giving you the classic EKG findings. They're not giving you anything like hypoxia or she was bed rest or had, you know, signs of a DVT or anything like that. So far less likely. So you can back. All right, good. So (laughs) we weren't too happy about the other ones and we read through the vignette and we're like, oh yeah, she's going to have an MI. Um, and answer choice D, the correct answer is a right ventricular infarction. I mean, my question is, is, is this an easy question? No. And, uh, I think the more you think about it, the harder this question gets, which is always tough, uh, especially when we're sitting here dissecting it. But the um, kicker to this is the classic ACS symptoms and the likelihood of an EKG showing uh, right-sided ST elevations. But it's hard. This is there's there's little. The more you dig into this question, the more you can see how. Uh, yeah, and I mean, this kind of goes back to like what I said before too. I feel like if I got this question on an exam, I'd be like, um, "What am I missing? Like, this really seems like a clear cut case. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. this is a, a softball of a question. It's it's got to be myocardial infarction of some sort. And then I'd get to like the answer choice and I'd be like, what am I missing? Yeah. Uh, how do you avoid that sort of distrust, that tendency towards distrust and thinking they're trying to trick you? Yeah, the, the chances of them tricking you. So I, there's, there's the occasional trick question on uh, every exam and it, it, it always happens. But the, the likelihood of that happening is, I would say, less than 1%. So always go with trusting the test maker uh, to make a more straightforward question. Uh, don't, and especially on this one. So if you're thinking about this from a test taker standpoint, knowing about a right ventricular infarction Why? is important. There's a lot of reasons. So it frequently, more so, I say frequently, more so missed, again, because we're sort of, our EKG is biased to look at the left ventricle. So the more subtle EKG findings, the less typical symptoms. The other uh, part of this is that if you miss it, then you uh, can give someone a medicine that will make them very sick, and that's nitroglycerin. So people who have right ventricular infarctions are what we call preload dependent. So their right heart can't pass blood to their left heart, and they're dependent on that volume that they have in their preload system. So if you bottom that out with nitroglycerin, these people get so hypotensive, and they will you know, go from systolics in the 90s to looking gray ash and being altered the systolic <laughs> from from a right ventricular nothing. infarction to a pan <laughs> ventricular <laughs> and atrial infarction yeah, <laughs> pan. yeah to perfusing Got absolutely it. nothing 
And and the thing is that we 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 give nitro. I mean, so often we give it all the time. And so, from a test taker standpoint and from a clinician standpoint, you the, you really want people to recognize this as a as a possibility. So it's such an important point to teach that uh, you know it's not something you're going to get a yeah. So I guess on. the the high yield points then to remember on that would be know what a right ventricular infarction looks like um, and uh, you know maybe give us in a second uh, some bullets to remember on that and then secondly don't give the nitroglycerin as part of the what is it Mona B regimen yeah um, <laughs> Mona B so uh, if I'm on a test uh, at the medical student level right ventricular infarction what's going to kind of cinch that for me Right ventricular infarction is very common with elevations in what we call the inferior leads. So two, three, and AVF can have a right ventricular infarction. You always want to avoid nitroglycerin or anything that reduces preload because they're preload dependent. And actually, you might need to give them fluids. So can occur with inferior leads, uh, ST elevations. Otherwise, treat like a normal ST elevation MI, but without. So she'll get a stent, very likely. Um, on yeah. then to our uh, final question for uh, this particular episode: A 52-year-old male presents to the emergency department with a one-hour history of crushing chest pain associated with nausea. His medical history is significant for hypertension. Family history is positive for early-onset heart disease. Nitroglycerin is administered, but despite this, his pain persists. EKG shows ST segment elevation in leads V2 through V4, as well as AVL. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? So is it A, digitalis, B, lidocaine, C, coronary artery bypass grafting, or D, thrombolytic therapy. I don't know. I, I probably would have written this question differently, uh, specifically the answer mm-hmm. choices to make it a little more um, difficult, I guess. But yeah, uh, yeah let's let's go through it. What, what stands out to you here is uh, things to learn. Sure. So this guy's probably sitting in the hallway next to the lady in question <laughs> two. So... Uh, the couple things about, so you got, um, just sort of, uh, cutting to the point, you've got a guy, uh, older guy, so older male, um, already some Framingham risk factors for heart disease. And then, um, is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the big one. So you, you, there's not a lot of ambiguity uh, and. Uh, yeah. ambiguity as to what's happening you've got the you've got a big uh probably a uh, anterior lateral uh stemming going on so the interesting part to this question is if you um went to school in a uh, big academic center or, or did you know saw uh, medicine occur in a in a bigger center you're sitting there thinking like where's the cath lab where's the balloon and the stent you know what are, what are we doing here um, so that would be the one thing that would probably throw you off if you were paying attention on your cardiology rotation. So you got a couple different answer choices. You've got two antiarrhythmics, uh, a cabbage that's delayed, and then thrombolytic therapy. 
I think one of the biggest principles to treating these acute uh, myocardial infarction events is uh, the, the, the paradigm that uh, time is tissue. So uh, time is myocardium. So any delayed therapy is probably not going to be the right answer. So uh, pretty immediately, you can take off cabbage off the uh, off your list of answers, and then then you're left with this thrombolytic therapy, which you may or may not know what that actually means, versus these antiarrhythmic drugs. So uh, digitalis being the uh, cardiac glycoside that. Uh, increases contractility and can reduce um, heart rhythm problems. Uh, I I'll f- feel fairly confident in saying that I I never expect that to be an answer on a cardiology question. Uh, just because, see, the the one thing we all know about DIG is like, well, you use it heart failure, it doesn't decrease mortality, but maybe it increases uh, the the chance that you stay out of the hospital, that yeah. sort of thing. But it's, it's, it's a controversial therapy, and uh, the chances of them putting something controversial in a test are so incredibly low because you just have, you have to have a clear cut, yeah. uh, superior I answer. mean, this is what I often say is, like, the boards try to take the very gray world of clinical medicine and turn mm-hmm. it into, like, a mathematical black and white science, and it's just not. That's not how medical practice works, so... You know, in that instance, I feel like you have an answer choice on an exam that you know is controversial, um, or it's like one of those things that can be used everywhere. It's not like a preferential treatment or something that's used incredibly rarely or third line, especially if you're in a guessing situation. Don't even pick that. No, I, I would never. So you may, uh, they, they do occasionally give you the old uh, digitalis overdose question, but I've never seen Dig uh, correctly as a correct answer for a cardiology question. Okay, so, so um, I, I, you could you could pretty much immediately cross that one off too. Uh, so that leaves us with lidocaine, um, which you know is, is again sort of like Dig. It's in the the realm of gray. It's a medication that's falling out of favor fairly quickly and is uh, quickly getting replaced by amiodarone. So as a, as a third-year student, you probably don't know that, but uh, it's it's in those, whenever you're talking about like quinidine or propafenone or procainamide or all those different, uh, especially the class one antiarrhythmics, I just, there's so few instances where I would use that either in real life or on a test question. That I uh, Unless um, we're talking about like a... Uh, Maybe a Wolf Parkinson White, maybe a tacky dysrhythmia from a Wolf Parkinson White where you want to avoid calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. That might be a time where 1A antiarrhythmic medicine might be used. But um, the question has nothing about his rhythm. We just know that he has ST elevation. So, yeah, no, that's a that's a no for me. No to lidocaine, no to digitalis, no to cabbage. <laughs> Uh, that leaves us with thrombolytic therapy. Thrombolytics. Um, so this is one, whenever I see that or like in the context of uh, either the heart or the brain, I'm always like, isn't there some timeline I'm supposed <laughs> to remember? Like that's the big thing yeah. for me. Yeah, and I, I, they don't test that that much. Um, 
Why do we worry about it so much then? It really comes up in real life uh, okay. a lot, but not uh, now. The boards, I, I feel like, stay away from that. Um, sort of digging into the answer a little bit. So, thrombo. When you're talking about an acute uh, ST elevation MI, you want to open up the occluded vessel, and there's a couple different ways of doing that. There's uh, there's PCI, which is percutaneous coronary intervention, which is uh, a catheter where you put a balloon in, you blow it up, and then you put a, a stent over it. There's, which is the preferred therapy uh, if you if you have it, you, you should so go for PCI. On this uh, question, if that had been one of the competing answer choices, mm-hmm. uh, hands down, you should pick that hands one down over. PCI. Uh, with, of course, everything else being the same, and she didn't have a contraindication to her procedure, and blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hands down would be a better therapy. It has less contraindications. It's safer. Um, uh, in some studies, outcomes are better. Uh, it, it's it's a pretty clear-cut, superior answer, and that's why uh, everyone's trying to get their cath lab up and running. You're, you're sort of left with like, well, when am I using thrombolytics? So thrombolytics is clot-busting drug. Uh, TPA would be the other name for it. In the situation that we're describing in ST elevation MI, you're doing it in situations where you where you don't have uh, a PCI available. So you don't have a cardiologist who can do a, a catheter and stent procedure. And then you uh, can't get them there within 90 minutes from first contact to the time that they do the stent. So that timeline itself is very institutionalized. So that is something that I don't think the boards would touch. Okay. But if you were given thrombolytics, you were given this exact scenario, you had both available, I would pick percutaneous coronary intervention. Got it. So basically this answer is correct because PCI is not one of the answer choices. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny, but like that's how you have to think um, on you know, the boards, like that's another way to test your understanding of say second line, uh, drugs or, um, you know, therapies, um, or, um, to, to assess whether, you know, X therapy is a treatment Mm. for Y disease. Um, when maybe that disease has like 15 different, uh, options for treatment, it's just don't include, you know, some of them as answer choices. It's one of those, uh, it's not a trick. It is a, it's a test writing strategy. Yep. Um, but that's, that's how they get you on the, uh, the second line indications. All right. Anything else about, uh, this question, uh, high yield points to remember? No, I mean, uh, just remember ST elevation MI needs an immediate therapy, reperfusion of that vessel, PCI, if you have it, uh, cabbage is an interesting, uh, option, but the delay is what makes me not think that that's uh, the correct answer. Um, there are certain instances where a cabbage is necessary if there's a bunch of complex uh, coronary lesions or something like that. But that's an advanced topic. That's like the the cardiologist, while he's doing the catheter, makes that decision. So that's not something I would expect a medical to, student to, to know. have you know, a medical student to know. Yeah, I think uh, all I can remember from that is that uh, there was a controversy b- between 2006 and 10 about uh, using uh, cabbage for multi-vessel mm-hmm. uh, coronary artery disease. I'm, I'm sure that's probably still the case because 
Yeah. But. And I think it's gotten more controversial and not less controversial. So. <laughs> Which means more confusing. I, I, more confusing, but less likely to be on a test question, I think. Hey, so. I mean, that works out for those who are listening. So Glass half full. Yep. All right, man. Well, thank you for your time. Um, if uh, people want to get in contact with you and have you walk them through their emergency test preparation um, or find a mentor who will walk them through on a more casual and consistent basis, uh, then go to medschooltutors.com. Thanks for your time and enjoy the last moments of residency on your way to the Toxicology Fellowship. Will do. Thanks, Patrick, for having me. Yeah. The music for today's podcast is by DJ Bezo. The track is King Jeff and his apprentice Bart. Elizabeth listened to this and said, <laughs> after I mentioned that he happens to be my son, that I should also mention that he's only 12 years old. So if you are so inclined, head over to SoundCloud and follow DJ Bezo. That's B E E Z O. You will certainly make a 12 year old kid's day. And I would certainly appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening. 